So, uh, welcome to Tokyo Jazz Joints podcast. I'm not sure if it's episode one or episode two. Um, the strange situation we all find ourselves in, sort of one of the happy byproducts of that was that we got together last week uh, and recorded a bit of a chat between ourselves um, about the project. Got some really nice feedback, some nice comments on YouTube and other places. So, we decided to turn this into a regular podcast. Um, and we've got some episodes planned out over the next weeks and months to give you a, a real flavor of a behind the scenes kind of feel for the project and, and what inspired us to do it. James, are you there in Yokohama? I am here in Yokohama. Nice to chat with you again, Philip. Cool. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today then? Well, I thought that what best thing we should do is uh, maybe give a little bit of background for our listeners outside of Japan who are interested in in the photo project and interested in jazz and interested in Japan, but have never actually visited one of these jazz cafes, one of these classic jazz kisaten. So starting with the real basics of what is a jazz kisaten? Um, and I think the most important thing to start with is that these establishments um, predate World War II. You know, like a lot of people, uh, when I came to Japan, I thought that two of my favorite things are baseball and jazz. And I thought both of them were introduced after the war when the Americans occupied the country. And then I found out that that was not true, that both of those things were here way, way before World War II. The Japanese imported both jazz and baseball sometime around the 1920s. Actually, baseball was even earlier than that. And there were um, swing dance halls in Ginza, the ritzy part of Tokyo, um, in the 1920s, just like you know, the Roaring Twenties happened in New York and all across Europe. That sort of happened here too in what they call the Taisho period. Unfortunately, um, as Japan militarized and became very nationalistic, these jazz locations were considered you know, degenerate culture, degenerate Western culture, and they were closed down. But the day the war ended, um, two things sprouted up uh, in the Shinjuku area, in particular of Tokyo, and that was the black market and that was jazz bars and jazz cafes. So the tradition goes way, way back further than most people know. And um, the second thing to know about these jazz kisaten is that they are very much a Japan-only phenomenon. Uh, that's for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason is that, you know, after the war, when things were really, you know, tight here, it was very hard to get imported records. They were very expensive. Um, you know, people couldn't even afford record players. So if you want to hear a new album that came out sometime in the 40s, 50s, or 60s, for the most part, you had to go to one of these cafes to listen to them. So the idea of going to a, an establishment to listen to a record um, was pretty much established at that period. And it's something that didn't happen in other jazz-loving countries like France or the U.S. I mean, uh, growing up in Europe, you, you never saw, when you went to hear jazz, it was pretty much live music, right? Yeah, and I think, I think what's interesting about that, just to, to add even further context to that, is, is just specifically why jazz. I think, you know, without going into too much Japanese history, but when, when Japan kind of finally opened up to, to the outside world and, and uh, the, during the Meiji period, sort of in the 18, late 1860s, I think, you know, there was a biggest, the biggest drive was for modernity and to kind of make Japan what they saw as a modern country. So I think jazz, particularly uh, into the 20th century, was really tied up with that, this idea of jazz being kind of like a modern music. And so, you know, it became really popular uh, in, in the sense that it was identified with progress and, and modernity. And I think for me, like what's really interesting is when you talk to people about this project and you talk about Japan, a lot of people don't make that 
association of of Japan and jazz. And you know, like it's funny for us because doing this project, like the two are are inextricably intertwined. But yet, like a lot of people, when you say Japan, they have these kind of like very sort of Hollywood kind of stereotypical images of Japan. But actually, we know. Uh, as do other people who've been to Japan, that like jazz is is really tied up in in Japanese culture and and in some ways very mainstream. And I remember one time we were out somewhere at, uh, having a drink, maybe before we went to a place, and and just um, something like Coltrane or something came on just in some random bar or some family restaurant or something. And like it's not something that you'd normally expect to hear. <laughs> you in, in you know, places, it's, right? it's funny because I, I'm trying to remember when that was, but it was probably so many times. <laughs> you know, it's hard to pinpoint. But but you're exactly right. It, it goes well. Actually, it goes in, in in parallel lines. It goes with modernity, but it also goes with the you know the whole idea of of improvisation, which is found in quite a few different Japanese traditional arts. Um, and music as well. Um, so if you combine all of those things together, and then you combine the specific conditions in post-war urban Japan where uh, living spaces were very cramped. So even if you were one of the few people who could afford a stereo, you know, you couldn't be pumping out the new Coltrane record in 1960. Your neighbors yeah. would kill you, right? Yeah, so, even nowadays, right, with the thin, the thin paper walls. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So it became a kind of thing, like, to to gather, to listen to the album, not just to go listen to live music, where, you know, in New York, you said, oh, I'm going to go listen to some jazz back in those days. That automatically meant a live gig. Whereas here, it would be either you could go catch some live music or you could go to one of these cafes where the owner would just have, you know, hundreds and over time, thousands of albums. And um, definitely something to emphasize for our listeners outside the country is that in those days, we're talking about the post-war period now, 40s, 50s and 60s, I guess up until the 70s, right? Um, You walk into one of these cafes in the daytime and there was pretty much no talking allowed. it was a time to listen to the music. Um, so in the daytime, and there's still a couple of cafes like that now, you walk in, um, you'll see pretty much the decor is mostly all the record albums along one or two walls, maybe a couple posters, some old magazines and stuff. Um, but you're there to listen to the music. You sit down, you order your coffee or your beer or whiskey, and the music is loud enough that you can't really talk anyway in a lot of these places. Yeah. Um, I mean, all the now, places. So, like, for the, for those of you listening, all the places that we we do mention um, are all on the project website, which is www.tokyojazzjoints.com. And the one that springs to mind in in Tokyo that we went to was Eagle, obviously, which I think still has at certain times of the day has a kind of a no talking policy. And if you want to see that in, in sort of visual images, uh, there's also a place on the site down in Kobe called Jam Jam. And I think they have um, this huge cavernous place uh, sort of underground and they have the whole cafe is actually split into two sections. So you've got, got like a kind of a talking section and then you've got the other side where, where uh, all the chairs face the speakers. Uh, and that's the kind of the no talking side where you just go to listen. And actually you'll see it in some of the other photographs where often, and certainly traditionally that was the case where all the seating was actually lined up uh, facing the speakers in almost like church or kind of like a that kind of style of concert rather than than like what we would associate with cafe style seating and stuff oh this there's there's at least six or seven places that have that seating arrangement yeah. where you you sit next to the person whoever you've gone with 
but you're not going to a jazz cafe to have a long conversation to catch up with your friend anyway these are places that you're meant to go listen to the music at loud volume on a good audio system um so the idea that you know asking the owner to turn down the music doesn't I mean, it's just unthinkable, you know? Although I do remember that one time, I think um, it's one of my standout memories, actually, and we'll probably talk about this place uh, as a highlight in a different podcast, but a place called Charmont, up in the sort of older uh, area yes. of Tokyo, up in the yes. Oshimachi area, and uh, distinct, I have a distinct memory of James and I going in. We, we, we just about found it. We kind of went up this tiny little rickety staircase, um, and we went in uh, and the owner, I think he's only open sporadically during the week because uh, amazingly, he also runs his own dental practice during the week. So he comes down in the evenings to open up this, this jazz place. And um, I, I'll never forget it because we sat down at the bar. I think we'd already been to a couple of places uh, and he put on Eric Dolphy live at the five spot. And he knew every note of that record. I remember him stopping at certain points when there was a break in the music and then starting back up. And he was absolutely loving this, this record. And then as we sat at the bar, there was a, a couple, sort of slightly older couple came in with like a grown daughter. And I remember the three of them going down to the end of the bars, looking sort of a little confused, maybe not completely where they expected to end up. Um, ordered, I think, a couple of drinks, and then at one point, uh, the the father called over the owner to to ask him. Basically, we realised later to turn the music down, and I distinctly remember him telling them that if if they didn't like it, they could just clear off. Which, to anyone who's been to Japan, will know is is definitely not the customer service that you normally expect, and and it just shows like how dedicated these places are to jazz and what they do more than anything else. There's no um, there's no kind of it, you know, um, attention really in that sense paid to sort of, is the customer okay? And, you know, oh, very sorry about the noise and what can we do? It's, it's all just about the music and it's about the experience of being there. And I'll never forget that night when we went in. There. I remember that so vividly. Um, yeah, absolutely. And what a star. That's uh, Dr. Nishioka. And I remember he also gave us some really tasty bourbon uh, for right. free yeah. on our way yeah. out, which I normally don't drink. Um, but you know, that's what you just said there is a really important point for people who want to understand uh, the nature of what jazz kisaten, jazz cafes, and jazz bars uh, are. You know, the, the the owners, they these people when they opened a lot of these places, you know, the '50s, '60s, and '70s, they they were outsiders to the Japan Inc. miracle, you know? They were entering the, the nightlife, so to speak. Um, so they clearly weren't doing it for the money. They were not a part of mainstream society. And that sort of feeling like lingers on today. I mean, yeah, they run a business, they gotta pay the rent and they have to pay their bills and stuff. But I mean, wouldn't you say that, you know, we've been to what, over 160 places and very, very few of them have made explicit changes to make it a more customer friendly experience for a non deep jazz fan. Um, most of them are pretty dirty, old, dusty, um, incredibly smoky for the most part, although that's changing. Um, the menu is limited. The, the coffee, to be honest, is not that great for the most part. And you certainly don't want to eat in a jazz cafe. Well, now, no, just, we, we differ that we differ there, James, to be fair. Like, <laughs> I, I'm always quite happy to eat the the otoshi that come out. Usually, I mean, there's been a couple of exceptions, but um, uh, you're, yeah. you're not quite so keen. But so I usually I usually get double the portion of like 
nuts or <laughs> chips or whatever it is. That comes I'm up. thinking some more two-day-old cold slaw with a fish paste on it. It's just, <laughs> just, I draw just, the line at those, um, I think, in, in Shiramuran, yeah. which is that place in Golden Guy in Shinjuku, where I remember oh. that huge wholesale bag of stuff that looked literally like uh, I like mean, the expiry date on that must have been 10 years for sure, you know. It's the funny thing, right? Because people people often ask me through through my website, which is the info, you know, my information site, Tokyo Jazz site. They, they'll be like, oh, you know, can we can we get lunch there? And I'm like, are you are you kidding me, man? <laughs> like, you're, you're in Tokyo. You're, you're in a place with the best food in the world. I would you want to eat in a jazz cafe. Like, you're going there for the music and have a drink. You know, yeah. you don't go, you're not going to go there to eat. Don't waste one of your great Tokyo meals in one of these places, you know? Um, but I mean, I think that's, you know, like you said, giving a good picture of what these places are. So you can, you can see from all the photos on, on, on the website, the sort of, you know, the decor is based around the music. The seating is based around the music and, and the, the owners, they are dedicated to the music. They're yeah. clearly not in it to make tons of money. I, yeah. I, I don't think any of them ever really had. I mean, most of the ones I've talked to have never left the country, you know, yeah. let alone, they don't really take days off, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so the jazz spots, you know, I mean, I, I think that like, you know, as we've gone along on the project, we've, we've really learned more and more that each place is like, okay, a vision of the owner or their kind of, uh, what their home, their second home is like, but they do have a lot of consistencies about them as well, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always attention to the audio. The records always have a really prime place in the shop. I don't, a couple places have them hidden, but for the most part, you see them when you walk in, right? And there's the odd place, I think, that clearly sort of switched over to CDs in the, in the 80s, but like generally speaking, most of the places it's still based around vinyl, isn't it? So let's just have a little think about the name. So the name, I, I came up with the name Tokyo Jazz Joints. It's funny because on my phone, it still has a question mark on it. And any time I use Siri to type a, a message where I put jazz, Tokyo Jazz Joints, it automatically puts a question mark after it because I think it was sort of a working title initially. And then it just became the way that we started to talk about the project. And then eventually... It, it it became the name of the project and i we toyed maybe at one time about the idea of japanese jazz joints but i think the project very much started in tokyo we both lived there it was very much identified with tokyo initially albeit it's it's kind of spread beyond but we use joints i suppose as that collective term for for all the places but maybe it's just worth digging a little bit deeper into the difference you, you mentioned kisaten which you know literally translated as, as coffee shop um and then also there's kind of jazz bars now Actually, we, it, it translates as tea house, I think, is more accurate. But yeah, same idea, right? Yeah, Coffee shop, cafe, yeah. tea house. Well, no, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you, you have the, the, the difference being really just the opening hours, because a lot of these places do have the same kind of vibe to them, right? But yeah. if it's open in the afternoon for coffee, um, and there's some old magazines, jazz magazines on a shelf, um, then you would call it a jazz kisaten, a jazz cafe. Yeah. Um, if it opens past six or seven, and maybe the seating is only along a counter, uh, you'd call it a jazz bar. Yeah. So there are some subtle differences, but the, the atmosphere and the vibe is very similar. So you were right, jazz joints was really perfect because we, even a couple of places that we've been to, well, quite a few, they have live music in the corner sometimes, but they're not a club, right? Yeah, so yeah. You wouldn't want to call it a jazz club. Yeah. So, um... How do we go about the sort of deciding then to the places that we 
kind of approached in terms of the project. Do we, do we want to go into that a bit about like, where do we start? We mentioned in the last episode, obviously about pithecanthropus, so we don't necessarily need to go over that again, but you know, right. the kind right. of plan well, of attack. I, re you know? I remember, yeah, because you had said to me when, when, we, when you pitched the idea to me that you had seen the places I profiled on my website at the start were mostly the older ones, you know, because yeah. that was where I liked to hang out. So I think we, we kind of decided at first, and that's why we went to Pithecanthropus first, because that was one of the oldest ones. And I, I, I didn't realize that the owner, uh, the original owner who was quite sick, had a plan to sell it on to a younger guy, because I was worried it was going to close. Yeah. So that was kind of the impetus there was like, okay, um, why don't we start with like the ones that we know the owners are pretty old? because we don't know when they're going to close. And, um, and I think that was, you know, we started in pretty much in central Tokyo for the first three or four months was it? Yeah. We even we got to the spread out gradually from, from those areas. I think, I mean, for me as a photographer, like I predominantly, I suppose my stuff is kind of documentary. So it, it's kind of preserving moments in time, if you like, or, or scenes or movements. Like I, I, tend to focus on kind of music and those kind of musical subcultures like the jazz dancers I started a little bit of work with the rockabilly scene in, in Tokyo as well and, and I think for me like the impetus was was very much to record these places for posterity because you know from obviously talking to you looking at your website and just seeing how quickly Tokyo changes particularly with the Olympics which was on the horizon you know like six or seven years down the line when we began the project you know I think like it was it was it was a way of of recording those places for posterity because they they were starting to disappear and my my sense was very much like if you don't or someone doesn't record and photograph these places now you'll never be able to do it again and like we know from from doing the project now for five years that actually quite a lot of the places that we've been to and we'll probably focus on on specific ones in in, in another episode but you know, they've gone. And so I, I, I'm imagining certainly from having been to other places and seen photographs that the owners have, that probably the only coherent set of photographs of some of these joints that no longer exist are, are the ones on Tokyo Jazz Joints, you know, and I think that's fantastic that we've managed to, to kind of record these places because, you know, without these, this selection of photos of, of these different joints, you know, there's no evidence really that they existed, some of them, you know. That is that is exactly right. Um, that uh, you know, we 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 spent a lot of time talking about that in in the early parts of the project. Like, you know, we've been in Japan for a long time, and we've seen people doing a lot of different projects, uh, whether it's websites, photo projects, film, um, on so many different aspects of Japanese culture. Uh, but as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the time it comes out real stale you know real real mainstream white bread stuff oh this is tea this is kimono this kind of idealized version of what the japanese many of them like to project to the world and what a lot of the world wants to see in japan and i personally have no patience for any of that stuff i find it really boring it has nothing to do with daily life here as it really is and going into these jazz spots, which, you know, like you said, they've been documented a little bit in Japanese magazines. Um, uh, There's several famous jazz photographers who are Japanese, but none of this stuff was accessible uh, to a non-Japanese reader or, or somebody in the country. Yeah. And it was quite incredible to think that, that, you know, even though there's so many people who collect Japanese jazz records around the world, not a single person had ever come to really document it the way that we were doing it. I mean, it was almost as if we saw this, this huge, uh, you know, highway ramp 
appear before us you know yeah. it was like oh yes you know let's take it we, that's going to be our thing we can do this you know i think um, we never imagined too like when we started i mean it, it, i think it would be wrong to give people the impression that we kind of set out to 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 record this whole scene across the country because i i think when i look back on the photos now i mean i remember certain milestones thinking oh wow you know like we've done 20 and, yes. then, and then it was 50. And then I remember posting something on social media about Kelly, which was like the hundredth one. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's been another sort of 60 since that. And, you know, hopefully um, in the, in this year, depending on how things pan out, we'll try and get another 30 or 40, you know, we have a list of places that we still have to go and visit. So um, it, it kind of very organically progressed from, from one to 10 to 20 to 50. And, and, you know, sometimes you kind of have to pinch yourself to think, wow, like 160, you know, and that was never the plan. But I mean, again, it's 160 places that, you know, have may, may not have been photographed at all in any sort of coherent way. Um, and what's incredible is that we're not even close to done. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's insane to think that there's that many in a country this size, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, like you said, the, 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 the almost, I, I feel like the importance of doing it, it, it comes in a bunch of different categories because, it's a part of Japanese post-war history. So I like, I think, I think we touched on this maybe in episode one, but you know, you can look at the project from multiple angles. You can look at it as I'm interested in Japan and this is a part of Japanese post-war history, the way they incorporated this foreign musical culture. You can look at it from just the jazz angle. Like, Oh my God, this is so cool. Look at these, look at these spots with all these jazz records, you yeah. know? And you can also look at it from the photo side. The fact that, you know, the, the physicality of these shops and we'll yeah. definitely get get into how you approach taking the pictures because that's mm. a very long conversation um, on another episode. But you can look at it as a photo project, not being interested in jazz at all. Um, so there's a there's a lot of different reasons why I think this is important work and especially emphasize one more time that, you know, if this is a part of Japanese history. And a very important part of Japanese cultural history that so many people are just not familiar with, even here, even we've had, how many times have we had Japanese friends or acquaintances ask us like, wait, what, what is a jazz, yeah. what is a jazz kisa yeah. And we're like, what, what are you kidding? You know? Or I think the ones that do know, do know of them, I think they have a certain, it's, it's probably hard to, to get across, but I think they have a certain sort of like a, a seedy, um, slightly kind of sketchy, sense that when people talk about them they're not some you know even if they do know of these places they're kind of a, they talk about them as if it's somewhere that they'd never be found or somewhere that they'd be you know they would rather avoid and even in some cases you know i remember in in impro the, you know the guy specifically asking not to photograph him or the the uh customers because again yes, i remember i remember that yes yeah well that's seen uh, in those places right would would not necessarily yeah. go across well with like your boss at work or whatever it is oh sure know? sure well we, and, and that as well is going to be a fun episode when we talk about the people who go to these i, yeah. I, I think that's a, that's an entire episode to just talk about the people the customers and the owners yeah. but but you know again like i said these these establishments very much were they sprouted up after the war in black market neighborhoods they were they were definitely outside of mainstream so they always kept that kind of that kind of uh how, how would you say they had a little bit of a stink to them in mainstream yeah. japanese society yeah. so sometimes when you tell people you know they ask oh where, where did you hang out last night say, oh i went to um such and such neighborhood to a jazz bar they'll just kind of look like oh but you know you're a foreigner you shouldn't go to that neighborhood you know? yeah 
Munich I think that's what's what? fascinating too, is, you know, that because they, they are very much like a combination of, of Japan and sort of, for want of a better term, not Japan, you know. So there, there's, there is an element of formality and rules and regulations about them when you go in. But, but then also what we found is like when you, when you show that you're in, into the music, you show what you're doing, the owners are open up much quicker than you would expect normally in Japanese society. You know, they talk, they'll tell you all these stories, they're joking around with you. Again, you know, Japan's famously very organized place, it's famously a very clean and sort of sanitary place. And yet when you go into these jazz joints, some of them look like, you know, they've, they've never been tidied up after an earthquake. They're, oh, yeah. they're dirty, yeah. you know, the food yeah. is not particularly good quality. I yeah, mean, yeah. You, you were mentioning about the drinks earlier even. I mean, I remember going into Garo that, which, you know, if you look on the website, is essentially looks like a shack. I mean, it's literally yeah. a corrugated iron shack in this beautiful gentrified neighborhood. And I remember trying to order Garo's a drink and the only two things were, were gin and whiskey. And so I said, oh, could I have a gin and tonic? And she went, with no tonic? So it's basically a choice of straight gin or straight whiskey. So I went with a whiskey, but, you know, you know so it's, it's not there's so much about them that are Japanese and, and obviously they, yeah, they come from there, but they're, they're very yeah, anti-Japanese in many completely. ways. As well, right? it's, it's, it's such a, it's such a hidden, um, beautiful part of the culture that unfortunately so many visitors to the country never get a chance to experience. And, yeah. you know, I think that ties into, like you said about the locations too, like some of the older places, you know, they're often not in areas profiled in guidebooks. Mm. you know like uh, you mentioned impro which is in an area called oimachi it's only one station away from shinagawa major shinkansen bullet train station you know where thousands of foreign tourists and business people go every day but they would never go one station past that to this very very old drinking area called oimachi to a place called impro i mean i've had people mail into us they've talked to us on twitter or instagram and they've just said like you guys are crazy how did you find all these places mm. and i mean part of it is because look we've done the research but also we live here and when you live somewhere you just have better access to all of this and that's another part of the thing is like as much as i love the interiors and, and the owners and and i do love it very much um the other main goal for me of the project is just to show a different part of japan to people that, yeah. they, that we, yeah. we, you and I have this ability. We speak the language, we lived here, we have connections. We can show something that no other foreigners have done. Like so what about, what about the language them. then? Like, so like, you know, when, when we're all able to travel internationally again and people go to Japan, you know, what, first of all, if you don't speak Japanese, is that gonna, is that gonna prevent you from enjoying these places? And secondly, if, if you do find them or you do venture into them, and sometimes, you know, they, they're not, certainly aesthetically at the start they're not the most welcoming looking places like what's the kind of etiquette like what would you recommend that how, how do people approach it you know uh so that they don't get kicked out before they, they've even had a chance to sit down sure well i think that i mean number one if you're if you're listening to this uh podcast you're already probably inclined to to be adventuresome to go and to go and find one of these places yeah. um but i would say the most important thing is this is just um obviously uh express that you love the music because these are places devoted to music it's devoted to jazz so if you do that you're going to get a warmer welcome um definitely do not speak loud um, being American, I'm very well familiar with American tourists. I myself am a very loud and fast speaker, uh, but tone it down a little bit. Don't go in and being an ugly tourist, okay? These, uh, 
these places are kind of like, despite being dingy and rundown or dusty or whatever we describe them, they are very, very serious about the music, okay? So don't go in there looking to have a drink up with your friends on vacation to take mm. pictures. Um, be respectful, be quiet, and try to, you know, just say a couple words in Japanese to the owner and to the customers in there. And I think you'll find that you'll get a very, very warm welcome. I mean, uh, even before I learned the language and I went to some of these places and I couldn't say anything, I could just order a beer. And you, you do feel uncomfortable because you're the foreigner and you don't know how the system works. Uh, but I just, I saw he was playing a Charles Mingus record and I was like, oh yeah, Mingus, Mingus, oh, I have that. And he just looked at me and I was like, I looked in my dictionary and I told him in Japanese, I have this record and I like it. And he had a big smile on his face. Yeah. And I mean, and I, some of the owners, I mean, they do have a handful of words in English. Some of them, some of them speak English reasonably well because they've either, you know, got this obsession with America or they've like worked with musicians that come to places and stuff like that. So it's not a case of, you know, if you don't speak Japanese, you can't communicate. And it, without being too schmaltzy and sort of Disney, you know, like that music is something that kind of unites you both. And so like it, there is definitely that connection there, you know, even if you can't um, say what you want to say um, in, in through language, you know, that connection across like whatever tunes he's playing or even like a thumbs up and stuff, I think, kind of, you know, really can, can build some bridges with the owners as well. And they really appreciate people, I think, coming in, um, you know, for the music and people who, who get it and who, who are not just in for like a night out or, you know, a bit of a, bit of a laugh or whatever. The other thing is uh, bring cash. Uh, none of these places oh, yeah. take credit cards. Yeah. Always bring <laughs> cash. Um, uh, be prepared for a table charge, but it's less than you pay for a tip back home. So don't yeah. complain about it um and yeah i mean i would say that if you oh be prepared to have very 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 narrow seating some of these places can be pretty tight and for um americans in particular who are used to having a little more personal space it can be a little bit uncomfortable yeah. um they just the other day from april 1st uh changed the smoking rules uh, in the tokyo metro area so i don't know how that affects the jazz cafes though because they're very small but be prepared. Um, if you are sensitive to smoke, you may not want to stay long. Um, but generally, I don't think that, you know, most of the places we've been to, we've never really felt uncomfortable. No. And, and you know, it, you it all adds to the beautiful intensity of the experience, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? Also, turn your phone off, man. Like, yeah, you good know, point. if you yeah. go to a jazz bar, you're going to listen. Don't be sending texts and stuff. It's just, it's rude and it looks annoying. It's like you're going in there to have a drink and listen to the music. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to do your mail and stuff, go to a chain coffee shop, but don't go to one of these places. And if you do want to find out places to go, there's only one place to go. That's Tokyo uh, Jazz site. And then obviously tokyojazzjoints.com if you want to have a look at the pictures of the places before you go so you can choose your seating in advance. It's probably a good place to wrap things up there for this episode though. Um, thanks to all the people that gave us really nice feedback and comments that the podcast. Oh, and is especially a uh, shout out. And I forget who this was. Who, uh, maybe we should put this in our, uh, in our, in our program intro online. It said, what happens when the Northern Irishman and a New Yorker walk into a jazz bar? Or there we go. Like that? Did well, you we see that? <laughs> we, haven't found, we haven't found out the punchline yet, but. <laughs> yeah. Well, we and before we go, a couple, uh, we've got a lot of different uh, conversations coming up. So just to give a little bit of a teaser, um, like Philip, like you said, we're going to talk about the, the customers. We're going to talk about the owners. Uh, we're going to talk about some specific joints that really stand out um, in Yokohama and Tokyo. 
Um, and one that I'm really looking forward to uh, is is the one that you labeled the three Beatles. Oh yeah. And we'll just leave that as a teaser. But the, the three Beatles are three very important people in the history of jazz shops in Japan. Yeah. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that one. Um, so yeah, if you want to hear the podcast, you can find it if you haven't already. Obviously, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify as well uh, and SoundCloud. So please go there. And uh, like they always say, if you like it, please rate it, review it. And obviously, uh, the more rate, ratings and reviews that we get, the more listenership we can get for the project. And then hopefully um, we can get beyond the 200 mark and beyond uh, uh, before we publish this long-awaited book. Uh, thanks for this week, James. Um, I'm going to talk to you next week. Uh, and, As always, yeah. thank you. And yeah, look forward to it next week, Philip. And stay safe over in beautiful Dublin town. You too, man. Take it easy. Okay, bye-bye. All right, see you.